Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I'm Kevin Gastola, and I'm very pleased to be joined by Max Sukan, who is uh, the Director of Operations for the Chicago Community Bond Fund. He's also a co-founder. And uh, the organization Chicago Community Bond Fund is part of the local coalition to end money bond in uh, Chicago. Or is that a national coalition, Max? It's a local Chicago-based coalition, Kevin. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Max, for being on the show. Thank you for having me. And so uh, to get us started, uh, uh, having you on because I wanted to talk about the work that has been done in the last uh, couple months here, and also some of the breakthroughs that uh, the coalition and, and, and your organization in particular seems to have been experiencing uh, because the city did adopt some reforms around bond. Uh, however, uh, there's a lot of tension as to like whether the judges are uh, doing what they should be doing. And, and of course, your organization can clearly document the ways in which they're failing. But before we get into that, for people who don't know about your organization, are not familiar with the work of the Chicago Community Bond Fund, just talk a little bit about you know, what this is, how it got started, and, and why it's necessary here in Chicago. So the Chicago Community Bond Fund was uh, founded uh, two years ago. It was the product of relationships and conversations of a group of um, people that formed, started forming in August 2014, uh, just three weeks after Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson. Chicago police uh, killed a, a black teenager in, on Chicago's South Side uh, named Deshaun Pittman, and he was 17 years old. And his friends and family gathered for a vigil to re remember his life, and it was pretty brutally disrupted by police who ripped down his memorial posters and kicked over candles and ultimately arrested seven people, which included Deshaun's mother and uh, uncle, aunt, and high school best friend. And so we read about this, a uh, group of outside activists read about this in the media and felt very strongly that we needed to start a grassroots fundraising effort um, really to supplement what the, the family was already doing. Of the seven people, five people were charged with felonies and were sitting in Cook County Jail because they couldn't make bond. And those bonds totaled over $30,000 collectively. So we made contact with family members and through these sort of a joint fundraising effort, um, we were able to raise bond to get everybody out of jail. Um, but it took us four months to do so. And we, we started with Deshaun's mother um, be, so that she was able to attend uh, his own, her own son's funeral. Um, and really through this work, we started realizing the uh, significant and totally preventable harms that happen every single day um, as a result of uh, the use of monetary bond which keeps people incarcerated. So on any on an average day in Cook County, Illinois, there are about 4,000 people sitting in our jail. It's the majority of the jail. It's almost two-thirds of the jail that's sitting there because they don't have the money to post bond. It could be $100. It could be, it's often around $7,000, $8,000 uh, to walk, or it could be $2 million. Um, but a judge has found that that person is not too dangerous to be released to the community, but for access to money. Um, and so, you know, the more we started uh, hearing the stories and seeing about all the really dramatic harms that were happening to people um, who are, you know, these are people that are held pretrial. So the majority of Cook County Jail, um, it's about uh, it's over 90 percent of the jail is their pretrial. They haven't been convicted of any crime yet. 
And during this time, you know, if you're charged with a felony in Cook County, it's going to probably last about eight months to a year and a half, but it can drag on for even two, three, four years in some cases. Uh, it takes a very long time. And during this time, if you have a, a judge sets a bond and you don't have the money to pay that bond, you're going to be sitting in jail. You might lose your job. You might lose your home. Uh, you might lose uh, custody of your kids. Uh, you, your health uh, benefits and other benefits get shut off after 30 days of incarceration. Um, the, the toll and the preventable toll that it has on uh, thousands of people who are presumed innocent under the law is just staggering. Um, it rips apart families. It has a ripple effect beyond just the individual, um, but really spirals out to affect um, other caregivers of children and family members and partners um, and other community members. And of course, this disproportionately impacts the black community. Chicago's uh, black community uh, makes up about a third of the county's population, um, but is actually about 74 percent of the people in Cook County Jail. Um, are 74% of the people in Cook County Jail are black. Um, and so black people are, uh, on average, and this is inconsistent with national trends, given higher, having higher bonds set than uh, white, white defendants, um, and then they're least likely to be able to post those bonds once those bonds have been set. So it sort of serves to funnel people uh, into this uh, system of mass incarceration. After policing, I would argue it's the second sort of uh, gate that sorts people um, and, and, and incarcerates people. So we we started conversations to create a fund that would post bond for people, but we were very clear as the Chicago Community Bond Fund that you know the, our, the solution is not a bond fund. That is a harm mitigation strategy. We're trying to prevent harm to individuals, but there needs to be change on a systemic level. We really actually need to end the use of monetary bond in its entirety. We want to essentially work ourselves out of a job. So in addition to maintaining a revolving fund, which has now posted bond for 95 people um, in the last two years, um, we focus a lot on advocacy efforts uh, to um, educate the public and convince system stakeholders that we need to move away from money bond. We actually need to end it in its entirety. And we need to do it in a way that simultaneously uh, drastically decreases the jail population because two thirds of people are in jail, like we said earlier, um, because they don't have access to bond. In theory, two thirds of the jail should be out right now because they've already been cleared for um, release by a judge. And if you take money out of the equation, ending money bond should decrease the jail population by two thirds locally. All right. So with the agitation and the kind of advocacy work that has been going on uh, by your organization and the coalition, there was pressure that was put on the city to do something about bond. And it appears they responded to that work. And why don't you uh, set out what they decided to do to you know, not only make it seem like they were doing something meaningful to reform bond, but also to show that they were responsive to what you were doing. Sure. So the Chicago Community Bond Fund is uh, one of about 10 members of a local coalition called the Coalition to End Money Bond. And this is a coalition of labor, uh, legal uh, advocacy organizations, 
faith-based and other activist organizations that sort of meet on a regular basis to coordinate efforts to end money bond and, and, uh, and reduce pretrial detention locally. And a part, as part of that coalition, there's also um, lawyers that have launched a, a lawsuit last year um, that basically is seeking a de declaratory judgment that Chicago's, or I'm sorry, that Cook County's um, bond setting practices violate the, the Constitution, um, that actually they disproportionately impact people that don't have money, um, and it's, punish it's a system that punishes people because they're poor. So partially in response to these local efforts, and I think in a large part um, in response to a national trend, um, as, as other jurisdictions have been dealing with similar lawsuits and losing, um, and also responding to external pressure to the criminal justice system in which bond is just one horrific aspect, because of liberation-based movements like the Black Lives Matter movement and other movements that have really pointed out the uh, racist injustice um, that's so prevalent in our criminal justice system, in which bond is, again, just one, one aspect of that. Um, so I think as a combination of this pressure, uh, inside pressure, external pressure, um, that you know, we see bond reform, bail bond reform nationally being one of the major areas um, in which the system is responding and uh, seeking to limit its use, um, and in some jurisdictions, do away with its use altogether. So what happened locally? was the chief judge of this county, Chief Judge Evans, issued, he announced in July that he was issuing a local order. So it only, it's not statewide, it only affects Cook County. Um, and this order is, uh, it's, it's general order 18.8A. Um, and so people can Google it and look it up and see exactly what it says. But the order basically says that judges sh should not be setting bonds higher than what people can pay. So it doesn't end money bond, but it limits its use by saying that money should no longer be a mechanism for which people are incarcerated. Money can be used as a condition of release, but there has to be an initial determination of whether um, uh, somebody should be held or released that is not supposed to be money based. And so what this order does, it went into effect a month ago on September 18th, uh, 2017 for felony cases, and it's going to go into effect for misdemeanor cases on January 1st of this coming year. So the order basically says that anybody who is in jail because they can't post their bond is entitled to a review within seven days. And that's important because oftentimes uh, people get court dates a month, two months out um, in order to actually revisit bond, um, a seven day period of time is significant in order to have those uh, bonds reviewed. However, what we've been noticing, and it's consistent with the national trend, most of the harms, the primary harms of incarceration happen within the first three days of arrest. So the major harms, like whether you lose your job um, or custody of your children, those usually happen within three days. Um, but the order sets a seven day uh, period for bond review. It's also supposed to have a retroactive impact for the people, the 4,000 people that are in Cook County Jail right now whose bonds were set prior to September 18th who are also entitled to a bond review um, within seven days of their bond initially being set. So, you know, that, this is uh, what the order does. At, at that, if, when bond reviews happen, um, at that stage, judges 
officers are supposed to reduce the bond to an amount that the person charged with the crime can afford, or they should just outright release them without having to post any money at all. Or they're supposed to be um, issuing a transparent, reviewable uh, determination, a, a determination that that person needs to be held no bond, that they're a danger um, to the community or an extreme flight risk, and that they need to be held um, no bond. Um, but but those hearings and determinations must uh, take into account the due process clause um, and, and relevant Illinois law. Um, they must be uh, much more substantive than the 37 on average seconds that were that bond hearings lasted um, in, a, in a study that was done just a few years ago by Chicago Appleseed. Um, and they're supposed to be much more individualized um, and fact intensive and reviewable decisions if somebody is going to be held no bond. So in theory, it's a really great uh, first step. It doesn't end money bond. It's not what we want, but it will. It, it significantly, uh, as written, decreases judges' ability to use money to hold people in jail. And we have noticed. So, so the coalition to end money bond has uh, initiated a, a grassroots court watching um, campaign. So every day in August, the coalition trained more than a hundred bond court watchers. And more than 80 people signed up for shifts to be in court, in central bond court, every single day in August and every day for the last month since September 18th. And that's significant because, you know, Cook County courts uh, historically have been uh, not very transparent. Uh, judges, sometimes when they are not following uh, the law, it's because they think that nobody's going to find out about it. Um, and so this is an effort to have some sort of community and, and public accountability of what judges are doing. As part of this order on September 18th, uh, Chief Judge Evans replaced all of the, the, the six central bond court judges. He replaced them and brought in six brand new judges. So they've been instructed with this order um, and this sort of foundational shift that's taken place in how Cook County sets bond. Um, and so this community court watching effort was also an attempt to see how judges were going to implement the order. So for every every weekday for the last um, month, um, court watchers have been writing down every decision. They've been tracking what is the amount of that the person says they can pay, uh, what type of bond is set, um, and is it in an amount that they can pay. And then we're also tracking whether or not people are getting those reviews within seven days and what's happening at those reviews. And what we've been noticed are the results are, are fairly disappointing to us. While deposit bonds, and those are bonds that require 10% of uh, the 10% to be posted for the person to be released, deposit bonds have noticeably decreased. There's no doubt about that. Their judges are using money bonds at a at a much less uh, much less rate than they were before September 18th. However, it's clear that the order is not fully being implemented. So just to give you a, some quick, a quick snapshot of what we saw over the last month, uh, over 1,000 people went to bond court, central bond court in Illinois, uh, in, in Cook County, I'm sorry, and over 350 of those people were given money bonds, so about a third of those people. And of that number, 110 of them were given bonds set in an amount that they higher than what they said they could pay. 
So while this number is, is far uh, less than it would have been prior to September 18th, uh, it's still clear that the order is not being implemented as written and judges are still setting money bonds higher than what people can pay. And when we look at whether people are getting reviews, uh, the implementation of the order gets even more disappointing. Uh, we're seeing that um, of 180 cases that we've tracked of people that were given money bonds since the order went into effect, within seven days, only half of those people were able to actually post their bonds. And then fewer than 10% of those people um, were able to pay their bond at their review hearing. So, um, at, so most people are not getting review hearings at all. The vast majority of cases, about 90%, more than 90% of cases that we've been tracking have not been given uh, bond reviews um, within the seven day review period or after. Um, and in that time, the Chicago Community Bond Fund has continued to post bond. We're still receiving calls from people requesting help paying bond assistance. Uh, we've uh, received over 100 requests for assistance uh, since September 18th. Um, and we've uh, now posted uh, four bonds and we're, prepared to, we're preparing to post another three bonds in the next um, day or two. Uh, so it's clear that uh, the order is not uh, the, you know, the, an adequate solution. It's an important first step, and if implemented, uh, can drastically decrease the jail population. Um, but we have much farther to go to make sure that that actually happens. And what sort of explanations, if any, have you been able to get from any authorities, whether they be judicial or city or county based, um, have you brought any of these concerns to them? Uh, we have. We've been uh, through our court watching data. We're going to be issuing the coalition and money bond will be issuing a report um, in the beginning of November that we will be releasing to the public as well as to stakeholders um, in the criminal justice system. We've also been uh, talking to stakeholders and sharing uh, summaries from what's happening in bond court and. What we're uh, noticing is that, you know, I think that there's some growing pains for sure as people are trying to figure out, um, again, these are brand new judges, they're trying to figure out uh, how uh, to implement the order. Every judge has been a little bit different. There are some judges that haven't set uh, money bonds. Unfortunately, there are some judges that don't set money bonds, but they're issuing a lot of uh, orders for electronic monitoring and other punitive pretrial service requirements that are not money-based but are still punishment before trial. Um, and every judge has been a little bit different in their pattern and as they sort of figure out this order, it's still a fairly new development. We've also unfortunately seen that the local uh, public defender's office has made no systemic attempt to, they're, they're the office that's representing most of the 4,000 people that's in the jail because uh, they, don't have, um, they don't have the money to post their bond. And they've made no systemic attempt to push for a systemic bond review for every one of those people that's only in jail because they don't have money. Um, so that's uh, an area where I think there's some hesitancy that, okay, well, if you take money out of the equation, some of these bonds, particularly the mid and high range money bonds that have been set, will actually become no bonds, that that person will be held uh, without the ability to pay money to get out if it's reviewed. And that, that is a real concern, I think, for uh, probably, definitely a, a 
minority of the 4,000 cases uh, in the, of people that are in the jail right now. Um, but it is a concern. Uh, but essentially, people are in the jail on a, on a money bond that they can't pay right now. So that means that they're, you know, it operates as a no bond as it exists right now, but they haven't been given a full detention hearing with due process protections uh, with an individualized and intentional uh, finding that that person is not supposed to be uh, released according to that judge. So, you know, we, we've been, we urge that the, you know, the public defender and other stakeholders uh, and, and private attorneys as well to be pushing uh, for bond reviews um, for everybody that's in the jail right now um, so that we can hopefully uh, get the vast majority of that number out and back home with their families and communities where they belong. And uh, and then I guess finally, just for uh, perhaps more specific glimpse at the work you're doing, uh, since I imagine there are a number of people who are going to hear us talking and this is the first time that they have heard about this work, uh, can you walk us through like what a typical case, like when somebody wants help from the fund, what is happening? Um, and, and, you know, maybe something, you know, without giving away any personal details that you shouldn't divulge, but like what kind of people are, are really in need of your, what kind of people are you working with? Sure. So um, in all felony cases in Cook County, the vast majority of misdemeanors are, are released without having to post any money on what's called an I-bond or released on your own recognizance uh, from police stations. But all felonies that are charged, get people charged with felonies get brought before uh, a judge to set bond. And that usually happens uh, within 48 hours of arrest, sometimes 72 hours. Um, and at that point, uh, you, know, you know, in these really quick, prior to September 18th and the hearings have gotten a little bit longer. Uh, we've seen the hearings now last a matter of minutes. Um, but prior to September 18th, it was one of the most depressing things you could ever watch. It was a an assembly line of people that had been arrested. Many of them had been held in custody for uh, two days already at that point before they're brought before a judge. And just one after the other after another as a judge is barely looking up and looking at them, setting bonds, um, or they have the option of releasing people on an I bond without having to post any money at that point as well. Um, but but bonds, money bonds were set in about 50% of those cases. Um, and these were hearings that lasted on average about 37 seconds, uh, sometimes a minute or two minutes if you were lucky. Um, and what that meant then is that if at that point, that, per, that person, if they don't have the money to post bond, um, is uh, goes to Cook County Jail and will stay in Cook County Jail until either they f have the money to post bond at a later date or um, their case resolves. Uh, so we receive requests for bond assistance, um, usually from family members, um, from referral organizations that we work with, and then people write us directly from Cook County Jail as well. And at that point, we have a... Uh, a, a, a criteria that we use, there's 11 interactive factors that we use, where we basically make collective and comparative decisions for all of the people that request bond assistance um, to basically try to mitigate the most harm, reduce the most harm that we can uh, to individuals. Everyone is being harmed by being in the jail, um, but we are trying to look and see what we can do with a limited amount of money to intervene in cases where um, we can try to prevent 
the most harm from happening. And in order to do that, uh, we uh, do a couple of different things. We'll do an intake uh, with family members to find out a little bit more about what their loved one's like. We need to talk to the attorney on the case. Um, and that's important for two reasons. One, many private attorneys work for the bond money. So because we want to protect the revolving nature of the fund, we need to make sure that that private attorney is not going to try to take the bond money at the conclusion of the case. And even more uh, alarmingly, in Cook County, uh, some judges have a habit of denying appointment of a public defender if bond is posted. So we need to make sure that we touch base with the public defender to say, hey, is this judge going to try to kick you off the case merely because we post bond? Or is the judge going to try to take the bond money to reimburse the county for the use of the public defender of what up to they can up to do that up to uh, $5,000 under the statute? So we talk to the attorney and then we also will go to visit um, the person who's requesting bond assistance in the jail and we'll gather all of uh, this information and we'll make decisions. Um, and then that decision gets accepted or rejected by a review committee um, of activists from various local community organizations. And then we will uh, post bond. So that's kind of what it looks like. The vast majority of the people that are requesting bond assistance are black Chicago residents. Uh, there's no question about that. Um, and, um, you know, we see we, we posted bond a couple of months ago for a 73-year-old woman um, who uh, was on oxygen in a wheelchair who had been in the jail for over a year. Um, we posted a bond to restore people to their, their children. Um, we've also posted bonds uh, in the nick of time so that people can, you know, at the very last day of people's uh, using up all of their their uh, paid vacation time to keep their jobs um, or to keep their housing. Um, and it, it sort of looks uh, different uh, in different cases, but the common denominator is that these are all preventable harms. All of the people requesting bond assistance from us are held pretrial, meaning they're innocent. Um, and that's not a radical concept. That's not... Um, an abolitionist concept. It's the established legal principle um, that you are presumed innocent until uh, proven guilty. And all of these people under the law are innocent at the time that they're requesting bond assistance. And we take that presumption very seriously. Uh, we never, we're not a guilt or innocence based organization. We do, um, uh, many of us in the organization believe in abolition. And what that means for us is that we're trying to work uh, towards a world where police and jails and prisons are uh, not the are not the ways that we address social harm or allegations of social harm, um, and that we find ways that are much more restorative and actually heal problems instead of creating more problems. And incarceration does just that; it creates more problems. Um, so the common denominator with all of the people that request assistance um, from the Chicago Community Bond Fund is that um, everybody's in jail simply because they can't post their bond and everybody is innocent under the law and everyone is being harmed and ripped apart from their families and their communities for one reason, and that's because they lack access to money. And then lastly, just uh, out of curiosity, in your work, 
sometimes I imagine you get to be in the courtrooms. Are you watching people be funneled through and then seeing cases and going, oh, we need to jump in and help out a certain person? Is is there any a bit of that? Um, there, that has happened on occasion. We we really feel strongly that we want to create uh, accessible processes that everyone can access. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's very rare that I'm sitting in court. I'm in court often. Um, it's very rare that I'm sitting in court where I don't see something particularly disturbing. Um, it happens. It's, that's the norm. Uh, it's not actually the exception. Uh, so we, while that's happened in a few cases where we said, okay, this is somebody that we need to track and see what's happening and see if it makes sense uh, for us to post bond, the vast majority of those cases are people that are seeking us out and requesting assistance from us um, directly. All right. Well, thank you, Max. I want to give you an opportunity to let our listeners know how they might support the bond fund, if that's something they would like to do, where they would go. Go ahead. Thanks, Kevin. Our website is www.chicagobond.org, um, and, and people should check us out in our work um, and, and think about steps that they can take in their areas uh, to challenge uh, the use of monetary bail bond where they live and in a way that actually gets people out of cages. Uh, what's happening in Cook County is happening in your hometown as well, and, and it needs to be stopped everywhere. So I encourage people to get involved um, with fights uh, to end pretrial incarceration um, and, and get people out of cages and back home uh, to their, fr- their families and loved ones. All right, well, once again, uh, this is Max Sukan. He is the uh, uh, Chicago Community Bond Fund Director of Operations and a co-founder. So thank you for joining the show. Thank you for having me, Kevin. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. This is the discussion part of the show. Unfortunately, Rania Kalak is not able to join us this week, but I wanted to do a short bit on something that consumed us all this past week, and that was President Donald Trump's phone call to Sergeant LeDavid Johnson, who uh, was killed when uh, troops were out on patrol in Niger in Africa, and and we'll get to uh, larger issues surrounding that. But first, I want to start with a segment, a a little bit that we have added to the show in the past uh, month or so here. It's our douchebag of the week, and we take uh, someone off of social media and we skewer them for uh, their expressions and and, and what they're saying. And so... uh, And we're always going to probably pick somebody who has a fair amount of influence and uh, is using their influence in a way that gives them a uh, uh, this award, uh, makes them uh, a grand example of douchebaggery. And so I don't know if you're familiar with this individual, but let me introduce you to David Martasco, who is the political editor in the United States for the Daily Mail. Now, the Daily Mail is a tabloid in the UK that is known for using headlines and imagery and uh, blowing 
racist dog whistles in order to sell its news. David says uh, in his Twitter bio that he is a, uh, right before his, he has the American flag icon first and foremost, so don't you question David's patriotism because he is a true patriot. But David is a word geek, and uh, I don't know what that means. Uh, maybe he's a fanboy of Will Shorts. Maybe he likes to do crossword puzzles, or maybe he likes to do other kinds of word puzzles. Maybe he just likes to spend time in his apartment when he has uh, no friends who are available to go out on the town. Maybe he likes to just sit in a dark room reading the, the thesaurus or the dictionary. I don't know. But David Martasco is... Uh, our douchebag of the week. And this is why I'm going to read to you what David Martasco had to tweet. It was in response to John Kelly, uh, chief of staff, who came out, and I don't know if you're familiar with this, but he came out into the White House press room and tried to get his boss, Donald Trump, out of the jam that he created by politicizing a phone call that he made to Sergeant LaDavid Johnson, and David said he was oh so impressed. In fact, he was so enamored by John Kelly that he said, this John Kelly statement is the most gripping spokesman duty I've seen all year. He gave it rave reviews. If he was Roger and Ebert, he would have given it two thumbs up. He, you know, was just ecstatic about the performance that John Kelly put on. He said Kelly slams, quote-unquote, selfish member of Congress, uh, referring to uh, Frederica Wilson, who is this black congresswoman out of the district around Miami, who has said uh, to the media that she heard Donald Trump make this phone call and, and, and said the words that she had overheard. And also, and I understand it, the phone call was on speaker, so as much as it could have been a private thing, it wasn't like she could not overhear it. David goes on to say, I love that Kelly is limiting questions to reporters who actually know someone in a gold star family. Can we try that with other topics? Can we try that with other topics? And then, continuing... In his um, effusive praise for John Kelly, he says, and he keeps referring to him as a general, even though right now as a chief of staff, he is serving as a civilian. This is a civilian position, and he does not come to the microphone in uniform. So he is John Kelly. He is chief of staff John Kelly. But anyways, David says, General John Kelly salutes the press room with a bundle of rolled up toilet, uh, uh, rolled up paper. That's the new mic drop. Again, this is, uh, this is some crazy stuff because he is just so excited and can't contain himself. Uh, the, the admiration, um, I think he's going to write a, a letter to John Kelly professing his, his love for all the work that John Kelly is doing and see if he can get a breakfast, uh, maybe go share a donut and coffee 
somewhere in Washington, D.C. with John Kelly. So you can tell him all the wonderful things he likes about John Kelly and, and see if John Kelly will maybe let him touch one of his medals. Because he's very excited about John Kelly. And the mail uh, put up a transcript. So for you who don't understand why this is this is so incredible, what, what had happened is if you were watching, John Kelly came out uh, and he said something to the effect that he didn't uh, think that anybody in the military looks down upon people who do not serve in any branches of the U.S. military. And then he went on and he said, in fact, in a way, we're a little bit sorry because you'll never have experienced the wonderful joy you get in your heart when you do the kind of things our servicemen and women do, not for any other reason than they love this country. So just think of that. And it's pretty clear that he just did a, I'm not racist, but, and then he proceeded to say something that was along the lines of the very thing that he was claiming not to be. It is quite clear from John Kelly, if you watch the statement that he made defending John, Donald Trump, that he in fact does have contempt for anyone that isn't in the military. He thinks that this whole dust-up over the phone call is a result of people, particularly those in the media, not being from the military and also being out of touch with people by not having any connections to those Gold Star family members. So what, what they are saying here, what he is promoting, is a very militaristic idea of how uh, the press should operate. So if they are not embedded, if they're not forming relationships, if they're not creating bonds with people who are veterans, if they are not creating bonds with people who are inside the military, then there's no way that they can judge what the country is doing. There's no way that they can judge appropriately uh, what has been done, right or wrong. And we're even just talking about a basic small ritual here of calling a soldier's family who has died, who was killed in action. And, and the suggestion, the uh, attitude on the part of General John Kelly, which I think is very arrogant and prickish, is to say that... I am not going to talk to press. I am not going to acknowledge press who do not have a reverence for all of the uh, blood that we shed overseas, around the world, who do not deify our military, who do not treat them as sacred uh, because apparently questioning the commander-in-chief, questioning the officials involved, questioning uh, what missions are ongoing, that somehow uh, opens you up to being a, a despicable, um, unpatriotic, and a less than deserving of respect member of the press. And back to our douchebag of the week, David Martasco is perfectly okay with playing the role of the bootlicker who gets down and says so many wonderful things about John Kelly and feeds into a dynamic where you could send someone who is a four-star general or was a four-star general before be, before assuming this civilian position, and there's really not a lot you can say 
in the way of criticism about him because his military service is invoked and it is used to stop and put a hold on any discussion about the politics, about the things that really do matter about what happened. So let's leave David behind with his word puzzles and let's continue on to uh, what is significant about what happened uh, this past week because I think that what is lost here in this discussion about the phone call is the larger issue of the shadow wars in Africa. It seems like most of the action is happening in North Africa, uh, but let's just remind people, let's just make sure that we keep this at the front of our conversation here, that in Niger, uh, we were building a uh, drone base that was expected to cost uh, tens of millions of dollars, if not a hundred million dollars. It was going to be a state-of-the-art base for launching drone attacks on people to support the shadow wars that we are waging in this continent. There's no question of the colonial aspect of what we are doing abroad. John Kelly comes out and was asked, why are we there? Why were these soldiers there? Why did Sergeant LaDavid Johnson and these other soldiers die in Niger? Why do we have a footprint in that country? And his answer was to say uh, that, um, you know, the people there in the special forces uh, were there to uh, work with the soldiers on the ground, to, to work with people from the country of Niger, to help them in fighting ISIS, to help them fight the uh, terrorist militants that they are uh, threatened by in the country. That's not to say that those people don't exist, but this mission that AFRICOM, African Command, has taken on, uh, the U.S. Africa Command, is not going to reconcile with the sort of collateral damage that they might be doing, or uh, the, the sort of carnage that might be a byproduct of their presence. What is uh, going on here when you talk about uh, just these troops being advisors or trainers of so-called security forces or state-backed militias that are being deployed to fight in countries that may or may not have the kind of stability uh, that you would want in a country uh, that, that may be impoverished, that you know, possibly our military support for their country is setting back that country as it focuses on just fighting terrorists, but does it work to um, help fund the needs of its people in that country? We have a way of taking advantage of situations in countries so that we can pursue our own agenda, pursue our own global agenda of dominance throughout the world. And so what happens is this does not get talked about. And so you have a whole week 
where we talk back and forth about the soap opera of this phone call to Sergeant LeDavid Johnson. And it's a ritual. It is a military ritual. And the thing that so offends people in the press about what Donald Trump did is that he used the words that uh, for, that David Johnson, LeDavid Johnson knew what he was getting into. That's what so offends people. But I think that I believe that Donald Trump wasn't doing anything all that wrong when he used those words. I actually am willing to accept the explanation that uh, John Kelly gave when he said, uh, when he addressed this whole thing of electing to call a family member, and he said that you know, President Trump maybe should not be making phone calls. And he also then proceeded to share that uh, he uh, would have a tough time making these phone calls because he was not in the family. And so uh, he recommended to Donald Trump what he could say. Uh, and because there's nothing you can do to lighten the situation to make those family members feel better. And again, as much as I am opposed to the militarism of this country, I do have to concede that there is something true about how uh, soldiers who served overseas veterans here, those are people that that family will want to speak to them. They'll want phone calls from those people. I agree with John Kelly. They would want to hear from those people more than a president of the United States. So, um, John Kelly, uh, this is the quote that uh, he said to the press. He said, uh, He's paraphrasing the call. He says he was doing exactly, David Johnson was doing exactly what he wanted to do when he was killed. He knew what he was getting into by joining that 1%. And he's referring to uh, this uh, top 1%, this, this, these people in the U.S. that join, the, the, the volunteer to go serve overseas. And then he says when he died in, in Niger, you know, he's surrounded by the best men on earth, his friends. And he claimed that that was what Donald Trump was trying to say to the family of not just LeDavid Johnson, but other people uh, this past couple weeks. So I think that's fair. I think that that's, um, I believe that Donald Trump didn't say that it, and that it got lost in translation. And this is a ritual here. This is a, we are getting upset at Donald Trump for being a person who doesn't have a way with words, who does not have human empathy, who has who struggles with sympathizing with people who are in pain and who are suffering. And we know that that is a, a, a key flaw, a character flaw of Donald Trump uh, to the worst degree because we've seen it in Puerto Rico with the disastrous hurricane. But what I don't let Donald Trump off the hook for is then going on TV and bringing uh, Barack Obama into it and all this other stuff, which is what the press has fairly 
and uh, rightfully called attention to it, and, and they haven't let go. And what I don't give Donald Trump uh, a pass on is the attacks on a congresswoman for telling the press what she observed, whether or not it is opportunistic or not. Uh, that is beside the point. It is clear to me that the Democratic congresswoman looked to score some kind of a political point against Donald Trump. But my feeling is that if you did not want these people to share this with the public, you wouldn't have done it on speakerphone. You could have made the phone calls in the Oval Office privately without putting on a show. It is so clear that Donald Trump wanted to bring this out into the open and, and, and find reverence and, and be celebrated and lauded for making these phone calls, which is crass, which is really crass because he wants to boost his poll numbers by uh, getting praised for how he calls uh, dead soldiers' families. And let's go back here because we have a lot of discussion. And so to, to wrap up this, there is a lot of discussion about how we show respect for our military. I find it remarkable that what we've gone through these past week and a half, this past week and a half is happening not long after and almost simultaneously with ongoing discussions about the protesting of players who kneel during the national anthem. So we're having a lot of discussion these past couple of weeks about nationalism, nationalism versus nativism. We're having conversations about what is appropriate protest when we're talking about symbols and all that jazz. And what is remarkable to me is what people are getting upset about is how Donald Trump performs a ritual, a ritual that is done as we continue to have soldiers die in a war on terrorism that has no end in sight, that is perpetual war, that involves violating international law, that involves war crimes, that involves torture, that involves uh, flying killer robots raining death from the sky, that involves rendition, that has involved other kinds of crimes against humanity, that has involved very crude conduct by our own soldiers, that has plunged them into the depths of depravity, that has made our own military veterans unwhole, that has made them return home scarred, that has turned them into people who then are not the same when they're with their families, who put their own family members at risk of domestic abuse, who put our society at risk of more violence, that make our society more susceptible to tragedy, that also are responsible for the deaths of tens of thousands, if not millions of civilians around the world in the past couple of decades. This carnage that we are perpetuating is not just limited to the assistance, the advising of people from these countries' governments. It is not just so simple to say that this is a thing where you send people in so that we don't have to have a footprint of tens of thousands of people, because that does not remove the 
involvement of the people who are being deployed in these wars. They are still part of the machine. They are still part of this killing machine that is moving its pieces every single day. The gears are turning and it is not a right to just sit back and focus on squabbling over the the different choices that Donald makes in that, that President Donald Trump makes in these phone calls to people. There is there there's far more significant issues for us to delve into as to why we have soldiers deployed in Niger. That is the critical question. Uh, we should not be pressuring people into being uh, the appropriate level of reverence into to giving the the highest amount of celebration to military they they do not automatically take on a position of being unquestionable because they have been deployed overseas there is still a policy that has to be spoken and talked about and that we have to confront the role that we play in our world because we play it. We choose to play it. These people want to talk about the institution abstractly without talking about the footprint and the impact and, and what people feel. What Nigerians feel knowing that there are U.S. soldiers in their country is as important as the feelings and the stress and the uh, tragic ongoing issues that families of the people killed in action are going to have to deal with. Uh, because just imagine knowing you live in a country where an outside force comes in and is getting involved in this kind of thing. That would be shocking. I would, I would guess that if we found that the Chinese were here in the United States and they had some kind of a militia and they were going after someone that they thought was a threat to their country and then they came under assault and there was a whole mess that we would feel like something was wrong, you should not be doing this. Now they, they say they're doing this with the consent of the government, but these partnerships are so secretive we don't have any transparency. We don't know what they're doing. And if they're so innocuous to just be partnerships in order to fight the Islamic State, which does have, and we've talked about this with Rania, does have genocidal aims. There are things that the members of the Islamic State do that have to be challenged. They have to be confronted. Uh, you can't just sit back and uh, you know, have Martin Luther King Jr. nonviolence to resolve the situation of the presence of the Islamic State in these countries. You have coalitions, you have people's forces, popular-backed forces that you're going to uh, put together uh, challenges to the presence of ISIS so that you can rid your country of torture chambers, so you can rid your country of their uh, sex slave rings, horrific shit that people have had to deal with. And that's uh, completely necessary. And, but yet, our country is so secretive about this, which makes it impossible to trust the motives. It makes it essential that you question that 
whether you're a journalist or a citizen of this country, you have to be wondering what it is exactly we are doing in countries like Niger. Thank you for listening to the show. Uh, We will be back next week with another episode of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. 